Musculoskeletal claims are a huge cost driver for plans of all sizes. How can you counteract the 40% of claims that are initially misdiagnosed and reduce spending on this cohort by as much as 35%? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking with Chad Gray. Chad is CEO at IMC, Integrated Musculoskeletal Care. And they're tackling what you may not even realize is one of the biggest problems and the biggest claims drivers in all of the claims that you've got. With that, welcome, Chad. Good morning. Nice to be here, David. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Because I think it informs your approach to what you guys are doing. Yeah, so I came from a a research background some 30 plus years ago, working on a PhD in neuroscience at Florida State University. And Got involved with a friend of mine who kind of had his finger on the pulse of what was happening in medicine, specifically around musculoskeletal disorders. And he had already recognized it. And then I came to recognize that we we had a huge issue in this domain or space and that there was a tremendous amount of variability and not a lot of kind of well-established fact fact and theory driving what happened in, in that space. And, and that was creating a pretty significant shift in, in the cost for that particular condition category and the, the patterns of utilization and care. And so I just took an interest in that and decided, wow, this is kind of a, an interesting project to take on. I'm going to see if I can try to solve this issue. I think I can see a way forward. I think I see where the problem lies at. If we could somehow kind of standardize the methods of assessment that are used and, and create a reliable way of diagnosing or a more precise method of diagnosing these conditions, we could do a better job of, of more accurately selecting care for the patient sitting before a provider. So I kind of set it on that pathway some 25 or 30 years ago and recognized that the, the way to do that was going to be gathering patient data and kind of validating what a lot of the science already said about what was broken and what, what should be effective, what methods should be utilized in, in that space and just kind of set out to, to build a body of real-world data or real-world evidence that would support what the scientific world had already you know, figured out some 15 or 20 years earlier. And uh, you know, here we are some 25 years later still on that journey now with a you know, fairly remarkable body of evidence and proof that you know, we knew what was broken you know, it, and we, we kind of figured out how to solve it or fix it. And now it's a matter of figuring out how to scale that across a system that already becomes somewhat institutionalized. So it was the accumulation of all of that data that brought you to realize that musculoskeletal claims were the big problem that you wanted to tackle? Yeah, it was just the recognition that at least in the scientific literature, there was a lot of 
you know, clamor and, you know, talk about what was broken and, and what the impact might be downstream. And it wasn't until I started doing a little research into, you know, initially CMS data, looking at cost trends and patterns of use, uh, and then started tapping into some resources in the broker brokerage and consulting world and kind of getting their feedback about where the, the pain points were for employers. You know, speaking with some of the partially self-funded and self-funded employers back then that were in the small and mid-market, and then eventually getting to some of the jumbo employers and really hearing their stories about, you know, year over year, what was their biggest pain point, what was their biggest burden in their in their benefits plan. And pretty much universally at that point, I started hearing that musculoskeletal conditions were, you know, right there in the top one or two or three, you know, some 20 years ago. And 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 now consistently we hear it, you know, over and over and over again from from the folks that we're um, consulting with or partnering with that, you know, this is absolutely the single biggest uh, category of spend for them year over year and a problem they want to try to tackle or solve. What percentage of medical spend would you say that it represents? It varies from region to region, but it, it runs somewhere between 16 and 22%, depending on the plan you're looking at. So it, it's right up there with pharmacy and pharmacy seems to have gotten an awful lot of interest, I guess, because it's been so hockey stick in its growth but musculoskeletal is kind of almost on a par with it. Where did that breakdown begin? You know, the breakdown really started with the recognition some 50 to 60 years ago by the research world that we didn't have a reliable way of diagnosing patients, a precise way of diagnosing patients and putting them in the right treatment pathway. So, you know, in musculoskeletal health, you've got two pathways for treatment. You've got those folks that are mechanical in their presentation and they need a mechanic to solve their problem. And there's two mechanics in the system. There's mechanics that move people and there's mechanics that cut stuff out of people. We call them surgeons. And, uh, and then there's, there's chemically driven people, people that have a true inflammatory process and they need a chemist or someone that can offer an oral medication to, to solve their painful episode or can apply an injection to solve their painful episode. But but what we didn't have, we had, we had plenty of treatment options and methods, but what we didn't have was a system of providers that were capable of reliably putting people into that correct treatment pathway based upon the patient that was sitting before them. How much does the process of variability patient to patient and data point to data point make it difficult to get your arms around this particular problem? It makes it extremely difficult for anybody that's operating in the big data space to figure out what the true incidence and prevalence of these conditions are because as many as 40% of them are actually misdiagnosis, misdiagnosed from the get-go. So you, you take, for instance, somebody with a lumbar or herniated disc, it's pinching on the nerve. They can have local back pain with associated leg pain, or in about half of those cases, they will absolutely have no back pain and only have hip, knee, or thigh, or calf pain. So if that patient happens to walk into a specialty provider shop and they don't have much back pain, but they've got a lot of hip pain or a lot of knee pain, and that person just happens to be a hip or knee doctor, they tend to classically kind of find something in the area that they're trained to, to deliver in. So you see a large amount of misdiagnosis that happens based upon a failure to understand how pain behaves in humans and, and how to properly kind of assign that pain to the relative body part that's producing it. And as a result of that, we see a tremendous amount of unnecessary or overutilized service because it's, it's actually being applied to the wrong body part. And, and so that confounds a lot of people that are out in the, the big data analytics space trying to, to figure out 
you know, how to solve what's broken in healthcare. If the data is so polluted that 40% of the cases are actually having treatment applied to the wrong body part, it's nearly impossible to adjust for that and figure out, you know, who in the system is doing a good job and who isn't, who's doing a bad job and who isn't doing a bad job. So it's kind of tricky with that much pollution in the data to, to solve it from just a purely big data kind of administrative predictive modeling process. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years experience working with educational institutions. And over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. And how much more of a complication is it that in, in this kind of an injury, oftentimes there's a lot of subjective patient-reported outcomes and, and, and feelings rather than just specific empirical testing to do? Well, I... <laughs> I think what we have to realize is that actually the patient data is is way more reliable than we believe it to be. You know, no one knows the degree of discomfort or pain or hurt that they're in better than the patient. So they have, you know, there are reliable measures out there to gather that sort of data and information and tell us to what degree is this, is this person disabled? Um, you know, how relevant is this disability that they've got? How how influential is it in their activities of daily living or in their lifestyle? And those validated measures are are, are there to help us decide if if this is a simple, a moderate, or a complex case. And and those are also very reliable measures for looking at treatment effects. So they should be used as kind of a gold standard for measuring what's happening with musculoskeletal patients, just like we use. A1C levels and lipid levels and blood pressure, things like that to monitor a diabetic patient or a cardiovascular patient. You know, you've got biometric indicators in those other spaces and, and, and in the musculoskeletal domain, you've got patient reported outcomes data focused around, you know, body part specific disability scales that have the capability of telling us how sick or how ill this person is. They just, they haven't been used as a standard in medicine. And so a lot of folks are kind of unfamiliar with it and uncomfortable using it. But it is, it is, according to the scientific arena, the gold standard of measuring both the level of complexity of a musculoskeletal case and the effectiveness of the treatment protocols you've chosen for that patient if the data is gathered correctly and analyzed and used correctly. Well, but that's, that's the, the fly in the ointment, isn't it? I mean, are, are there universal, reliable examination methods that are used across the board that get you to that point? Or is there variability in that portion of the equation as well? There's there's a lot of variability there, but if you if you if you dig into the science, if you look at the uh, peer review studies that look at the reliability of musculoskeletal assessments, there's one clear winner, and uh, that clear winner is what's called mechanical diagnosis and therapy. It's got more than 
19 randomized controlled trials speaking to its intertester reliability. And, and really having that intertester reliability is the key to having a scalable kind of standardized assessment model in place in medicine. And I don't know of any other method out there that has that level of validation behind it, that level of kind of peer review supporting the intertester reliability of an examination method in musculoskeletal health. So we, we adopted that as the standard for our providers. So every physician, every every PT, uh, every chiro that works in our network or system has to use those standardized models of care to consistently get a more precise diagnosis and then select more, more reliably or accurately the treatment method that that patient may need. I, I think some of our listeners may find it interesting that the word mechanical comes into a medical uh, discussion. Can you explain a, a little bit in layman's terms what that means? Yeah, so so pain can be produced in the human body through two very simple mechanisms. You can have an inflammatory dominant pain or a chemically driven pain, and that's the kind of pain you experience when you, say, sprain an ankle. You know, you step off the curb, you roll the ankle, you damage the tissue, it swells up significantly that day. It, you know, it, it has a heartbeat. It hurts so bad because the swelling and the inflammation that are there are triggering the firing of that nerve. But that's a short-lived event in human beings. It's typically only a you know a two to seven day experience where chemicals are truly driving the pain. Shortly thereafter, what begins to happen is the tissue begins to repair and heal itself, and it stiffens, and the pain transfers from being chemically mediated to mechanical. In that, you've got tissue that's adaptively shortened and gotten stiff now, and every time you tug or pull on it, it aches, and that's a mechanical pain. Or a very simple analogy is. You know, take your finger and bend it back as far as you can. And at some point, you begin to experience pain. That's mechanical pain in its purest and simplest sense. And, and everyone knows that once you bend the finger back that far and start, it starts hurting, there's only one way to stop the hurt, and that's to take the pressure off. Well, musculoskeletal conditions really fall into those two classes or categories. They're either mechanical or they're chemical. And if it's chemical, it can't be treated with movement. It has to be treated with chemicals. And those chemicals come in the form of either oral medications or injectables. And, and, and that's a, a small group of individuals that actually kind of exist in the musculoskeletal space. Only about 2 to 5% of the total population of MSDs or musculoskeletal disorders are going to have a truly chemically dominant feature about them and need oral medication or injections. And everyone else is going to fall into the mechanical bucket where they're hurting or aching primarily because something has gotten stiff or short or something is being impinged or compressed and needs to be kind of released. So what's missing, once again, is the ability of, in medicine to reliably subgroup those patients and put them either into a mechanical treatment pathway or into a chemically mediated treatment pathway. So what's the solution? We've talked a lot about the old way and the problems inherent with it. What's the new way? You know, I believe the, the, the only way we're going to solve this problem is to first and foremost, make sure that we're getting the diagnosis correct more often. And, and that starts with having a reliable assessment method in front of every patient early on that's entering the system. And if we can do that, then we can more effectively steer them towards the correct solution. So we've got to standardize around a reliable model of examining patients and then, you know, accurately kind of putting them or more precisely putting them into the correct treatment bucket, if you will. That's, I think, the, the long-term solution. The challenge is that 
you know, we've got an institutionalized pattern of care that's been happening for a number of years now that, you know, really has kind of allowed providers to almost act with impunity. There's no consequence as a result of a poor outcome in medicine in, in the musculoskeletal space. Nobody gets penalized for not getting a patient better or applying a modality or a treatment to a patient that doesn't actually need it for mismatching the treatment to the patient. You know, if I'm chemically dominant and I stick you in six weeks of physical therapy, then shame on me. I know there can't be a, a, a good outcome there because the physical therapist can't manage the chemical part of the problem and vice versa. If I, if I take a mechanically dominant patient and stick them into an injectionist office for the next three months and get, you know, repeat epidural steroid injections and they don't get any better then shame on me because we didn't put them in the right place for the, for the best possible outcome. And, and so we've got to really start by first and foremost, getting the, the diagnosis correct and, and putting people into the right treatment pathway and then building a standard around, you know, that process so that it's scalable, it's reproducible from, from location to location, from town to town, from state to state, from country to country. Now, one of the things that we talked about offline was that you favor an approach that you liken to grand rounds. Can you explain what that is and why you think it, it, it's a better way to go about looking at this problem? Yeah. So if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to build a standardized kind of guideline driven, quality assured process of care delivery, you have to have a mechanism for measuring what happens inside of that system. You've got to have a way of, of providing that quality assurance in almost real time so you can track and monitor the outcomes of your patients and the behavior of your providers. And so we, we, we believe the best way to do that is to create a, a model of team-based care. We, you know, we can call it grand rounds. That's a term that's been used in medicine for a number of years. You know, everybody kind of gets together and consults around this patient case and tries to develop corrective actions for it. You know, I believe that's the best model of care available for musculoskeletal clinicians is to standardize around the, the right kind of assessment, use patient reported outcomes data as the kind of leading indicator of success or failure at the clinical level. And you gather those, those data on every patient going through that model and you have a database that's capable of accumulating or aggregating that information and reporting on it so that you can react to it. So in a system that allows us to flag cases that aren't meeting expected levels of improvement with their pain, their function, or their disability, you know, we've got a system that's capable of identifying those patients and then quickly escalating them into a grand rounds, you know, team-based committee so that they can, you know, as a, as a group, start working on developing corrective actions for those cases that aren't meeting expected improvements and let the other ones kind of pass on through that are kind of passing the, the muster, if you will. So if we started by talking about the percentage of medical spend that these claims represent as 16 to 22%, what can this kind of an approach do to ameliorate that? So if you, if you had a, a really well-oiled machine and you plugged this model in, you could expect to see as much as half of your spend go away just by reliably examining or assessing these patients and then putting them into the right treatment track or pathway. You could eliminate most of the unnecessary care and a lot of the overutilized care and effectively, you know, cut your spend in half. That's in the perfect world. Realistically, you know, if you can go in and, and, and adopt the standard and develop some sort of quality assurance process or system to, to kind of wrap around that clinical model, 
you know, with, with leakage and, you know, some bad patient behaviors and some bad provider behaviors kind of creeping into the mix, you know, realistically, you're going to probably see somewhere between 25 and 35% reductions in your total spend. With the minute or so that we have left, we oftentimes like to ask our guests, what do you see as the future? Where do you see this going and, 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 and the progression of this different kind of method to look at these claims? You know, I think we'll see some early adoption here by some of the large self-insureds. I think you'll begin to see the small and mid-market begin to kind of jump in there as well as some of our larger brokerages and consultant consulting groups you know, recognize that there's a better way to kind of design the delivery system, a better way to kind of measure results and success in this area. I think we'll begin to see a lot of widespread adoption, you know, downstream, but here in the early stages of this, you know, there are going to be some pioneers and some leaders that are going to design and develop some better models of care, some, you know, super clinics, if you want to call them that, that are really capable of driving down cost by delivering actually better outcomes, higher quality care, leading to a remarkable shift in the total cost of care for patients going through this space. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. Thank you.